get your Bibles open. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians. We're in our second week of the new sermon series. We started last week on this. Uh, there's a slide for you, built by Christ. We're talking about God's vision for the church. Last week, we looked at Jesus' words in Matthew 16, and probably to summarize that in one sentence would be to say, Jesus promises to build his church. Uh, the church is his idea, and he promises to do it. And I find that reassuring that it's not up to me to do it, but I get to participate with him in the work he's doing. So, Jesus builds the church, and this is part of God fulfilling his plan to be reconciled and to be in communion again with his creation. This is a good thing. We're going to talk about that more this morning. Today we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Are you there? Good. Chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 to 17 or so. We're going to jump into this. This passage, we're going to talk a little bit about Corinth. If, if yesterday, or last week was the church and her builder, Jesus, this week is about the church and her identity, or the church as the temple of God. We're going to get into that. 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 3. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. It's a good start, Paul, thanks. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, and behaving only in a human way? When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being nearly human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Your servants, through whom you believe that the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. But do you not know you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear and to receive your word in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So three, three points for us today, sort of three themes, all wrapped up in identity. First, Paul calls the church in the first nine verses, calls them away from rivalry and back to the true builder, back to Christ. So there's a call away from their issues, back to the foundation. Secondly, this is verses 10 to 15, he calls us to participate in building the church together on a good foundation of Jesus. 
And then lastly, he calls them to a new life together as the temple of God, filled with the Spirit. That's verses 16 to 17. So those are sort of the three, the three parts there, if you can kind of skim, skim over that and see that. So the first thing that Paul does is he calls them away from rivalry and back to the true builder. Now, why would he need to do this? I'll give you just a two minutes on the background of Corinth, unless you're a Corinth master, which I'm not, so I had to do, I had to look it up. Corinth is a port city, it's this big trade center, and so that means there'd be a, a huge transient population, lots of people coming through the city, bringing all sorts of ideas from all around the world. So you've got a place that's, that's got a real mixture of religious ideas, uh, lots of pagan cults, hundreds of temples, all kinds of stuff going on. In fact, Corinth had a reputation for sexual immorality, and one of the ways you kind of found your status in a city that was always changing is you aligned yourself by uh, getting involved in a certain club that maybe had some pagan rituals involved. And so you kind of got yourself situated somewhere, attached somewhere, to some kind of group because the world around you was always changing. Uh, when Sarah and I lived in Vancouver for two years, uh, Vancouver's a port city. Similar kind of thing, you've got all sorts of ideas and people from all around the world passing through. So there's a, there's a desire for some kind of social stability in Corinth, and that would, that would create huge problems for the fledgling church, especially if sexual immorality is kind of what you're known for. You can imagine that uh, to follow Christ in a city that is very powerful and has lots of people, it would be really hard to do that sort of thing, wouldn't it? So you've got a whole diversity of origins, uh, all kinds of people getting together, coming to the Lord, and then kind of bringing all their experiences and ideas into the church, and now having to sort of sort out what's, what's worth keeping, what's good, and what do we need to kind of get, uh, what do we need to lay aside? Makes sense, right? This happens hopefully for all of us when we come to the Lord. There's parts of us that we need to lay aside, and there's parts of us that the Lord affirms and calls us into. So, so they're struggling with their identity. What does it mean to follow Jesus? The other thing that the Corinthians love is they're amazed with the power of the Holy Spirit. So they're all about uh, charismata, so you know, speaking in tongues and prophecy and all that sort of thing. They're all about it. But we get the sense, reading Paul's correspondence report, that they're more interested in the power and the spectacle than they are in understanding it and in following Jesus. You can understand the temptation there is to simply say, whoa, cool things are happening. Fantastic. We must be really something. And instead, we find, Paul says, what does everybody say right off the hop? You're infants. So all kinds of spiritual gifts are happening. That's great. But Paul says, you're morally bankrupt. You're so interested in power, you don't know what it means to follow Jesus. It's not that the spiritual gifts are the problem, but you're your over-enthusiasm about them, separated from Christ, is causing a huge issue here. You need to ground the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the Spirit himself, who is loving and abiding in Christ, and calling you to abide in Christ. So there's some real issues here. So that they're confused, they're a bit petty, they're really ambitious, they're really enthusiastic, but uh, they're immature. And this is the church that Paul writes to. I think of it this way. I think there's a bit of spiritual elitism that's infected the community. They think we're really something. 
Folks, that's a dangerous place to be when you think you're better than others. So take a look at those first few verses. What does Paul say? Verse 1, he calls them infants in Christ. He doesn't say you're not Christians. He said you're, you're sort of baby Christians. You're just getting started. So don't think you're so mature that you kind of know what's going on here. Just take it easy. Slow down a little bit. You're infants. He says in verse 2, you're not ready for solid food. I, I've tried to, I, I'm giving you milk still. Any of you have nursed or had children, you kind of know what that's like. Then he says, verse 3, there's still jealousy and strife among you. And as, soon, as long as you're living in that, you're living in the flesh, you're living in your sinful nature, you're not following Jesus. Does that make sense? So he kind of calls them out on their immaturity. Now, it seems here that you're kind of wondering, what's all this about Paul and Apollos, right? I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Um, Apollos was another teacher uh, teaching the gospel, so we would think. Paul had come and planted the church, but what's happened is because, um, because of that, that background, remember I said, you, what do you, how do you kind of find your footing in Corinth as you find someone to attach yourself to, right? Some, some group that would help you find your identity. So they've done this, but they've done it in the church now. So they're breaking off into cliques, into factions. So some are saying, I'm going to follow Paul. We've got sort of a little Paul camp over here. And these guys are saying, well, I liked Apollos. He was a better preacher. So we're going to follow Apollos. There's others that said, I don't want either of them. I just want to follow Jesus, not realizing that Paul is an apostle of Christ, you know? So, like, it's okay. And they're just over here kind of doing their own thing. So you've got everyone kind of off in these rival parties. And what happens when the church does that is they're defining themselves by their differences of taste and not their common life in Jesus. It's a huge problem. Folks, whenever we gather as people, there's always this tendency to define ourselves in different ways. And it might be by power, or it might be by knowledge, or it might be by prestige, it might be by our social class, right? We might say, I make this much you know, so I fit in kind of this sort of social group. I can have this sort of car, you know, these sorts of things like that. Um, whenever we do that in the church, we have to be really careful because God doesn't measure the success of the church by her, her power or her prestige. In fact, often the church looks ordinary and weak um, because our hidden life is not in our material success, but in our being united with Christ. So what it means to be the church looks radically different from how the rest of society might define what a successful institution looks like. It's important for us to get sort of our, our focus right, isn't it? And to get our vision on track. So we've got all kinds of issues here. Do you see the issues? I hope you can see. And maybe you've been in churches where, where people have kind of split off into cliques. Like there's sort of this group over here. They don't feel you can go talk to them. Like, you know, they feel a little elitist. Or there's the group over here that's uh, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. Paul's saying that's dangerous. So what does he do to address all this? He calls them out of their elitism. He points them back to Jesus. Look at verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Right? We're servants of God. That's it. We're no, we're no more special than you. We're no more particularly gifted. We have a, a particular calling to be planting churches and preaching the gospel and this sort of thing. But that doesn't mean you want to sort of throw all your chips in with this person. We're just, we're just servants. In the same way, I'm a pastor, but I, it doesn't mean I can't sin. I'm just, I'm still a human, right? 
We're more in common than you might think. There isn't sort of a barrier here. You can't sort of approach Nick, you know, because he's really somehow more spiritual than you. It's not that at all. Hopefully you don't think that. If you do, it's good if you don't. So he reminds them, we are servants. I planted Apollos water, but it's God who gives the growth. Now for 10 summers, I worked at a tree nursery. And uh, I know a thing or two about watering and growing. Uh, I was actually in charge of irrigation near the end. And this is right before I, I, I became a pastor. So I like this metaphor because Paul's saying, look, there's all of us are contributing to the growth that God is causing in the church. You know, it might be like we, we water the crops or we monitor the crops or we fertilize the crops or, you know, we, we have to adjust the temperature in the greenhouse or we lift the sidewalls up a bit or we have to turn the lights on or we have to cover the trees so they can set root. You know, so the buds can be ready to go when you plant them in the ground. All these sorts of things that we're part of doing in terms of serving. But I can actually make those trees grow. Like, at the end of the day, I would set the parameters, right? But I don't actually get in there and somehow make those seeds germinate. There's something in the seeds themselves, by the grace of God, that makes them grow. I'm part of sort of setting it up so that the conditions are right for them to grow. And in the same way, Paul's saying, look at I was, help, I was helping plant. Apollos, Apollos came after me. He helped water. But this is God's church. God's the one doing the growing here. We're just servants that come alongside and help. And it's not built around, you know, Paul's teaching style or Apollos's, maybe he was a really charismatic preacher. Who knows? It's not based around that, but it's based on the foundation, which is Jesus. So he calls them back to that. And folks, that would be my heart for us is that None of us here would just be sort of pew warmers uh, as, as you move pews and rewarm a new pew, but that you'd be growing as disciples of Jesus. That is really the thing at the end of the day that matters most. Simply coming here on a Sunday is fantastic, um, but if you're not growing in Christ, if he's not the foundation of your life, and indeed if, if, if the foundation of the church is not Jesus, we're really off kilter. I would submit that it is that Christ is our center and our foundation. And that's a good thing. So he points them back to Jesus. He says, you need to watch out for that sense of elitism. You need to watch out for a sense of rivalry because power and maturity aren't the same thing. So you need to be careful. Christ is the foundation, and as you lean into Jesus, and as we set a good, a, kind of lay a good foundation, uh, continue building upon that, then we'll grow together and we'll become more mature. So Paul reorients their whole identity. It's a, it's a brilliant thing how he does this. So he calls them out of the stuff that, that would have identified them as Corinthians and calls them now to become Christians. Isn't that great? And that kind of brings me to the second point. So he calls them away from kind of their petty ambitions, um, their vain sense of rivalry, their spiritual elitism, um, he calls them out of all that and calls them into a new sense of participating with Jesus. And so he, this is verse 10 and onward, right? He's saying, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I was laying the foundation. Someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. The idea is we're all contributing together to seeing the church flourish upon the foundation of Jesus. We've all got a part to play. You're all called into ministry, folks. To 
Did you know that? My job is not to do all the ministry. My job as a shepherd or a shepherd teacher, however you want to call my vocation, is to equip you for the work of ministry. So each of you that has a part to play in cultivating the life of the church, I don't know what that is, but I'd like to help you learn what it is so we can get on with the work that God calls us to together. Do you see how important that is? That Paul expects them to be living a community life together, founded on Jesus, and that the leaders in the church, wherever they might be, are simply there to help you along in being the community of God that you're called to be. Uh, so there's an important work for me to do, but it's not all about me. In fact, the church should go on if I'm not here. Because it's the church founded on Jesus, not on Nicholas, right? Uh, so there's a check for myself to not think I'm spiritually elite, but in the same way we need to be aware of fads and trends and whatnot, and to submit to Christ and continue to build on Him. That's our call. So how might you be called to, to, to play your part in that? I don't know, but um, here's some options for you, maybe. It might mean uh, to, to continue building on Christ, to, to, build a, to, to build with gold and silver and precious stones. It might mean uh, to be ministering in one of the areas of the church's uh, life. It might mean praying for and helping out with youth group. It might mean being a Sunday school teacher. I don't know. It might mean practicing pastoral care. It might mean tucking under uh, my wing or Velma's wing as we do uh, pastoral visitations and going and visiting people. It might mean uh, praying with the healing room team. It might mean being alongside someone as they're sick and dying and being present with them in those moments. It might mean any other mixture of things that involves the life of the church. It might mean having people over in your house for a meal, which would be fantastic. It might mean educating the next generation in some way. What we're doing with the school, what Audrey's doing with the school, is part of laying that good foundation uh, in the same way that each of us, who, who's called to play some part, uh, from, from Walter, who does a fantastic job cleaning our washrooms every week, uh, to Nick, who's the chairman of the board and looking over policies, and all, all everyone in between, it's a level playing field. There's no sort of hierarchy of whose ministry is better than the next person. But the call is to contribute together to the work that Jesus is doing in building his church. And so a good question for you folks is to say, Lord, how are you calling me to participate in the good work you're doing here in this community? And maybe you can't do too much right now, and that's okay. It might just be to pray. But I would submit that as you press into that question and pray into that question, Lord, how would you use me in this place? Uh, he'll, he'll probably give you some answer. He'll give you some indication, whether it's being part of the worship team or helping with the coffee in the back or anywhere in between. Um, we're called to participate together, not to sort of close ourselves off, right? There's just what Paul's warning against, but to open ourselves to each other and ask, how can we grow this together in Jesus? So you see, you see the difference there, right? And I love how Paul starts that section. He says, according to the grace of God given to me. Folks, at the end of the day, whatever we do is only effective because of the grace of God. So if what we're doing is not propelled and animated by the grace of God, we've got a problem. So you see that you see how Paul's calling them to a certain humility, isn't he? So different from the jealousy that you had up in verse 3. Now he's calling them to be humble servants together in what God is doing. 
So he's calling them to a new sort of attitude. I think it's brilliant. So where are we? Where are we in the sermon? Paul's called the church away from rivalry and back to the true building, back to Jesus, verses 1 to 9. And then he calls them to be humble servants, building together upon the foundation of Christ. That's verses 10 to 15. And then finally, and I want to just live here for a moment, because this is really important. Paul wants to expand their vision of what it means to be the church. So look at verse 16. I think this is the real clincher. He says, don't you know that you're God's temple? God's spirit dwells in you. You're a temple. God's spirit dwells in you, and therefore, you're to be holy. So he's moved them quite a distance now, hasn't he? He's called them out of their rivalries and their elitism to humbly growing together in the church. And now he's calling them to a new identity in Jesus, which is that together, as the church gathered, you're actually the temple of God. He's really changed things for them now. And you are a temple. Folks, we are a temple because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. That's what makes the temple the temple. It's the presence of God. You don't have the presence, you don't have a temple. So he says, you're the temple because you're filled with with the presence of God. And therefore you're called to be holy. So remember what he was saying, there's jealousy and strife. You're living in sort of your sinful behavior over here. He's calling them to holiness, right? To new identity in Jesus that will then propel them into a holy life together. The you here, when he says, don't you know, you are God's temple. This is plural. It's a plural you. So we don't really have a good, a good plural you in English. The closest thing is y'all. So it's like he's saying, all y'all are God's temple. All of you together are the temple. He's telling them you're more than just this, you're more than just kind of this collection of individuals. You're the very temple of God in Corinth because the presence of God is with you. If that's the case, you need to flee the sexual immorality that once marked your lives as Corinthians. It's a real call here for you. You need to ground yourself in Jesus and realize the gift that it is to be called temple. That's a big deal, says Paul. And I think, as I was first sort of studying this, it took me a minute to kind of get the wonder that Paul conveys by calling them the temple. That should really sort of knock us back on our feet, I think, that he would say that. Because to be a temple, as I said, means to be filled with the Spirit, the very presence of God. Now, presence is a great word. Uh... Yesterday we were, we were busy doing some work at our place and Rowan was at Grandma and Grandpa's. And after a while of not seeing him, I was sort of longing for the presence of my son. If you've had kids or uh, you have family that you're close to, you've probably experienced this at some point where you would like to be home or you'd like to see mom and dad or you know, you'd like to be back home with the kids or you've been on a long trip. You just want to get back. There's something about presence uh, that, that the Lord has put in us that just makes it part of who we are. Because God is a personal and relational being, uh, he makes us long for presence. This is part of who he is. So he makes us the same way. We long for presence. Part of the problem, folks, with the fall is that we lose not only our vision of God, 
that is his right, uh, a view of his right character, who he really is. But we've lost relationship with God. We've lost that sense of presence. So let me trace for you. I just want to paint a quick picture for you of, of presence so that we can read this, this verse, 1 Corinthians 3.16, with all the force that I think Paul intends. Okay, let me do that. I'm going to take about five minutes and just kind of run through presence with you. Presence, folks, uh, is a theme that carries all through Scripture. You've got from Genesis to Revelation. It kind of holds the whole thing together. In fact, it bookends the whole thing. So in Genesis in the garden, you've got God uh, abiding with his creation, walking with them. He's in communion with them. There's a deep sense of presence. He's just there, right? And in the end, you have a garden city now where once again, God is present with his creation. What does John say in the end of Revelation? He says, I looked and there was no temple in the city. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. They're right there. Don't need a temple anymore. In fact, the whole world's become the temple. By the end of it. Right? So you've got presence from beginning to end. And in between the garden and the city, that's the trajectory of salvation history, is garden to city, where the tree of life is again present, and the nations are gathered around it. It's a beautiful thing, the end of Revelation. But in between, you've got glimpses of God's presence in particular ways. And probably the two main ways that we're most familiar with are tabernacle, right? You grew up in church, you've probably heard about the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and then the temple. So how do you get that? Tabernacle. This is, this is the way that God reveals himself primarily in the Old Testament. So very quickly, God, uh, Moses is wandering around Mount Sinai, right? He sees a burning bush. It's a bush. I had a New Testament professor that says, it's just a bush. It's not even a cedar. It's just a bush. And Moses goes, oh, I'll go see what that's about. And off he goes. And he meets God there. And God calls Moses to call his people out of Egyptian slavery. But Moses shows up and doesn't just say, let my people go. He says, let my people go that they may worship. Right? So he calls the people out of Egypt back to Mount Sinai so they can worship him. This is Exodus 19. The people get to the place of God's presence. And it is terrifying. They're freaked right out. We talked about this a bit last week, right? Uh, so they get Moses to go deal deal with God. They said, we can't deal with him. His presence is too overwhelming for us. God says, you know what? Instead of us camping at this mountain, I want to come and dwell with you. I, I want to have a home for my presence as you travel. So they make plans, and God gives them the plans to make up a portable tent where the presence from the mountains, I'm going to go live in the tent, right? This is a tabernacle. So they're working on the tabernacle, and what happens? They turn to sin. And you get this this really interesting exchange between God and Moses in chapter 33 of Exodus, and God says, you know what? My presence will not go with you. To which Moses says, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, we're not going anywhere. It's not worth going to the land if your presence won't be with us. Moses is right on the money. It's not about the land, it's about the presence. And so the Lord reveals his character further and he says, okay, I am, where before it was I am that I am, now you hear I am is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, 
abounding in love and faithfulness. So they get the tabernacle built, and you get the end of Exodus, you get the descent of God's glory filling the tabernacle. It's brilliant, right? Awesome. So off they go to the promised land, and there's many uh, adventures along the way, and they want to find the permanent place where God will make his name to dwell, his presence to dwell. This is the point. So they say, let's get the temple going. I'm skipping lots. There's many adventures. They get the temple going, and what happens? God's presence descends and fills the temple now the way it fills the tabernacles. We're on to, this is good. We're in good shape so far. This is the place God has chosen to dwell. Folks, more, more than Sabbath and more than all the food laws and more than all the ethical stuff in the Old Testament, the thing that defines Israel as Israel is the fact that God's presence is with them. This is what makes you Israel. This is why it's so terrible that when they turn to sin, what happens? We read in Ezekiel, God's presence leaves the temple. That's why it's absolutely heartbreaking for them, because they no longer know what sort of people they're meant to be. So Israel goes into exile, repents. It's a long story. They come back, they think, we need the presence back. This is what makes us Israel, right? There's no point in being here if we don't have the presence of God with us. So we should rebuild the temple. That makes sense? So they rebuild the temple. And what happens? You've got all sorts of people prophesying, like Ezekiel. He says, my dwelling will be with them. I'll be there, God. There's this great hope God will return. We'll have the temple back. We'll have the presence back. We'll be in good shape. So they build the temple and God's presence never returns to it. No presence in the temple. The temple's empty. And so they're waiting, waiting for God's presence to come back, and they realize, yeah, we're back from our exile, we're back from being displaced geographically, but as long as there's no presence in this temple, we're in spiritual exile. Until... You've got the last Old Testament prophet calling people back to prepare the way of the Lord to repent and be baptized. This is John the Baptist, last Old Testament prophet. <coughs> calls them back. And you realize, as John tells us, the word became flesh and dwelled among us and we beheld his glory, presence, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the return of the presence back to Israel. This is why when they see the old temple building, Jesus says, destroy this, and in three days we'll raise it up again. They think he's talking about the temple. Jesus is talking about his body, the temple. This is why the veil is torn at the crucifixion, because the presence is no longer there in the temple. This is why when you come to the open tomb in John 21, you see the angel on either side in an empty place. You realize this is the Holy of Holies and the presence is left. That means the presence has filled the whole world. You see how that works. So Jesus is the return. He's the new temple. He's the presence restored. And with the resurrection, Jesus ascends to the Father as a human, was a human at the right hand of the Father. And he sends the Spirit 
What? To do what? To inhabit the church so that now the presence of God is not at a local uh, geographical place in Israel where we have to go on pilgrimage to get to you. The presence of God is dwelling now in every local congregation around the world that lifts up on high the name of Jesus. That is the weight that Paul has in mind here when he says, don't you know you're the temple? The presence of God is right there with you. That's a big deal. There was a long time where that presence was not there. But now because of Jesus and the new covenant, we can experience his presence every time we gather. Not only is his presence here in the gathered congregation this morning, but his presence is in each and every one of you. What a gift. What a beautiful thing. That's what Paul has in mind. And think about it, folks. You've got that mountain, that terrifying mountain, where the folks, where the people didn't want to come closer. So different than from the presence of Jesus, where God comes to us. What have you got in at the Last Supper? You've got John leaning on Jesus' chest. He's got his, he's got his ear right to God's heart. This is now one we can see and touch and handle. The presence made flesh, and now that presence abiding here with us. What a gift. What a, what a difference of identity. From all that, you see how penny it is now? All that rivalry and stuff that was going on. Right? Paul says that you're really missing what it means to be church. You're so involved in all that stuff, trying to figure out who is more powerful and popular than who. You're forgetting you're the very temple of God in Corinth. I think it's brilliant. It's fantastic. That's the background he has in mind, folks, when he gets there. So he's reminding them, you're the very temple of God in Corinth. What that means is you're now the alternative to all of the pagan temples all through the city. All the places you could have went to find your identity, now you come here where I've gathered you. This is where you find the true presence of the true God. You're in Jesus in this place, he says. Brilliant. And so because the temple is what they are, that's why they have to be holy, folks. Because the presence of God is right there with them. You see how that works now? It's not just because there's a list of sort of things to do and not do because God will get angry or something. It's because he's right there with you and he's holy. And he calls you to life. So he says, be holy. Live out the character of God, slow to anger and gracious, abiding in love. Let me wrap this up for us. Those three things. Paul says, turn away from the rivalries, turn away from that sense of elitism, and let's be mature in Jesus, right? That's the first thing. Second thing. Instead of tearing your church apart, let's grow together as servants in what God is doing. And thirdly, why can we do any of that at all? Why should we? Because we're the temple of God. Folks, we are the temple of God here in Dryden. 
Do you realize this? And it's not localized to this building, that when we go out from this place, you bring the presence of God, that presence, all the weight of what that means. You bring the presence of God into every situation of your life this week. Where you're living, where you're working, if you're going to school, I don't know why you're going to school in the summer, but if you were. As you go off to camp, as you're out fishing, whatever you're doing, you're bringing the presence of the Lord into that place with you. And so you become then almost like an ambassador of his temple out into the world. And as you live a life of holiness and love, you're witnessing to the true presence of God which has come for us. Do you see that? See how that works? That's what it means to be the church. That's a bit different, hey, than just sort of we get together once in a while and hang out. Do you see the mission there? Do you see the, the depth of what God calls us to? It's a beautiful thing. That's what he calls us to, folks. And you know what? The great encouragement that I find here as I wrap this up is that God would actually call me to be part of his temple. And I'm not that special. I'm sinful just like the rest of you. And yet he calls each and every one of us to be part of his temple. What amazing grace then for us folks. That no matter what you've done, as you come to Jesus, there's forgiveness and grace. I heard a great quote this week. There's no record of my sin in heaven. There's no record of my sin in heaven. Folks, as we come to Jesus and realize God's great desire to live and commune with us, to, to forgive us, to call us into salvation, we each are given a new part to play as we become this temple together. Isn't that great? What a gift. A new identity. Not because we deserved it, because totally the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. Amen.